Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind-the-scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them. Each juror had a paddle. Now, we've all seen that. In every courtroom I'd ever been in, the judge lines everybody up by their number, one, two, three, four, five. <laughs> She's like, she gave out your paddle, says, sit wherever you want. <laughs> like, juror two is in the back row, juror one's over here. I mean, oh, like, gosh. And I was just... <laughs> losing my mind please rise court is now in session all right uh, welcome to the great trials podcast this is steve lowry with yvonne godfrey yvonne how are you doing today i'm good steve how are you good although uh, it literally just started uh, pouring and storming where i am so hopefully we'll keep our electricity and stay on the air uh, that yeah, that would that would be good because uh, you're the captain of this ship, so yeah, we need you. Right. Otherwise, otherwise, you're doing this one on your own. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, if I'm gonna do one on my own, it might as well be an exciting one like this one because we're we're doing something. We got a really interesting case, and we're doing something a little different today. We've got yeah, we've got a great case. Uh, I mean, just uh, really fascinating facts. A great trial lawyer, as always. We always have a great trial lawyer on. We have uh, Bill Atkins, uh, and uh, I'll let Bill say hello. How are you doing, Bill? I'm doing great. Thanks very much for having me, guys. Of course. And then what we're doing different today that we've never done on the podcast before is we actually have uh, Bill's uh, client on the phone. Uh, that's Mr. Mark Tuggle. Mark, how are you doing? We're doing great today, and uh, thank you for having having me. And uh, looking forward to to the podcast. Yeah, yeah, no, it's exciting, and uh, and I can't wait to hear uh, this story not only from Bill's point of view, but also from your point of view, Mark, because because uh, hearing what clients think goes on in courtroom can be a lot different than uh, than what lawyers think about what happens in the courtroom. That's very true because most clients never has never been in a courtroom like this that's right and usually never want to be in the courtroom so uh that, that is true that is right. true well bill let me uh let me go ahead and introduce you to some of our to our listeners uh bill is a uh, partner in the atlanta law firm of warshower woodward and atkins uh we just uh actually just did a podcast with your law partner natalie woodward and she had a fantastic uh verdict with dax lopez and uh made for a great show uh that's the uh warshower woodward and atkins and you can look up bill at their website warlawgroup.com uh that's warlawgroup.com so bill uh before he became a great civil trial lawyer uh started out as a prosecutor and um and did uh prosecution for about three and a half years uh and then moved over into the civil side and has tried cases uh not only involving uh injury claims medical malpractice claims uh trucking claims but also civil rights uh and has uh worked on a lot of um uh sex abuse cases and and things like that and the case that we're talking about today i guess we would call a civil rights case uh it's it's a section 1983 case of uh, that's the federal law 42 usc 1983 which allows us to sue uh our um officials of uh, of government entities and i'll i'll let bill talk a lot more about section 1983 because it's definitely not one of the things that i'm as familiar with <laughs> but uh in addition to being a great trial lawyer uh bill uh, uh has a, a wife and puppy uh that he lives with and says he has four stepchildren spread around all over the country 
And, uh, and as also since 2014, so almost 10 years now, I've been coaching a uh, high school mock trial team. And uh, I did that for a while, Bill. I know how much fun that can be to coach uh, coach high schoolers in uh, in mock trial and, and how you really see some, some talented lawyers or lawyers to be. It is uh, the most fun that I get to have uh, from year to year, uh, despite its significant frustrations. They are in high school after all. <laughs> Right, right, exactly. They don't always want to listen like they like they should. I, I assume. Um, have you seen Bill since you've been doing it so long? Have you seen any of your uh, students go into law practice? Um, I have actually. Um, well, law practice not quite long enough for that, I guess. Um, I have Alfonso Gentry um, is actually in his second year at BC Law now, um, and uh, Tamar Shimon uh, is will start law school in the fall. Um, I should tell you that I actively dissuade them from becoming lawyers. So. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> uh, there's a lot of good that can, can be done. I mean, it, it's not the easiest profession, uh, but it can sometimes be a, uh, a it's a, a very rewarding profession and, and important. Uh, the, the cases that we do are important. And, and this case that we did where you represented Mark, um, and I said, we did, you did, uh, where you represented Mark, um, is just a, a not only a fascinating case as far as the facts of the case, but just a very important case for this sort of um, abuse of power uh, that happened. So I'll give everybody a brief overview of the case. And uh, the name of the case is uh, George Mark Tuggle uh, versus the sheriff of Clayton County, Georgia, Victor Hill. Uh, in his individual capacity, and then also uh, in uh, the sheriff in the official capacity. It was tried in September of 2008 in the Northern District of Georgia Federal Court and um, resulted in a total ver or the, a verdict of $475,000, $250,000 of which of which was compensatory, and then $225,000 was punitives. And then there was a, an attorney's fees award, which is allowed under Section 1983, which by my calculations, after looking at the judge's order, looked like it was about $202,000 uh, in addition to the, um, to the $475,000 awarded by the jury. So... Um, so long story short, and it's not going to be short, but uh, we'll start out with uh, Mark's brother, Stanley Tuggle, was the sheriff of Clayton County uh, and had been sheriff since 1996, had been in law enforcement since 1973, and had worked his way up. Uh, in 2004, uh, he lost the election for sheriff to a uh, man by the name of Victor Hill, who became uh, the sheriff of Clayton County officially uh, in early January of 2005. So as a part of becoming the new sheriff, <clears throat> uh, all of the uh, staff and all of the deputies uh, have to be re-sworn in. And so I, I, it sounds to me, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, Bill, but it sounds like they let everybody know they were going to do the, the swearing-in ceremony, invited everybody to show up, and then sounds like they put them all in the jail or put them in or put them, I don't want to say in jail, but they put them in a, in a, essentially a, a place in the jail, had them turn in their badges and then summarily fired about 28 uh, of them, told them that they were no longer uh, law enforcement and that they needed to leave and escorted them out with uh, with armed deputies who were carrying um 
long range rifles with them. And then apparently even had snipers placed on top of the, of the jail or on top of the sheriff's office, uh, basically to make sure that these people left and that there were, I guess that they weren't going to do anything violent, uh, hadn't let anybody know any, any, anything about this. And, uh, the, the interesting thing where, I mean, it's all interesting, but, uh, one of the things about it is they told them to leave and told them that they couldn't stay there anymore. But all of these people who had been uh, career deputies and ca- career law enforcement had shown up in their um, their vehicles that had been provided to them by the county. Uh, so police cars. Uh, and now they no longer had those cars. So they know they had no way home. Uh, and so basically the um, the then sheriff, Victor Hill, informed them that they could go home uh, either by walking or by um uh, to go in the paddy wagon that would take them to their neighborhoods. Um, and as far as whether or not this might be race-based or anything like that, it sounds, Bill, like it, there wasn't exactly any evidence of any uh, racial discrimination, but there was more that most of these people had been supporters of Mark's brother, uh, Stanley Tuggle, who had been the sheriff and who lost the election. And then as soon as uh, Sheriff Hill came in, he fired all of these people. So... Sorry, go ahead, Bill, if you No, uh, you go ahead and finish. Uh, well, yeah, I, I was so Mark uh, and, and Mark, I'll, I'll let you speak a little bit about this. But I, I, I have two statements that, that Mark uh, called once he found out this information he, and he found out by watching the news. And Mark uh, was friends with a lot of these people, uh, obviously knew a lot of people in law enforcement since his brother was the sheriff. Uh, but once he saw that his, that his friends uh, had lost their jobs and had been fired, uh, made two phone calls to the sheriff's office. The first phone call he made uh, was to, I think, the re- uh, what would have been the receptionist, who for the longest time for under his brother had been a woman named Sherry. Uh, she had actually been fired too. Um, and so Mark left a message that, and I'm just going to read what I have written down here, Mark, uh, is the, you left a message saying, Sherry, this is Mark. I'd like a meeting with that short little bastard sheriff of y'all's. That was that was one message. Uh, and then the second uh, and then he had another number uh, that was more of a direct dial to the sheriff. And uh, and he called and talked to a gentleman there who took the call, told him he would like to have a meeting with the sheriff. And when they asked what the meeting was about, he told him that he would like to tell the sheriff that anybody that would fire uh, these people who had dedicated their lives to law enforcement uh, was scum. So, uh, you know, he, he didn't uh, directly call uh, Sheriff Hill scum, but but had said uh, that anybody that would do that was was scum. So those were the two phone calls. They took place in about a six minute period. And after uh, Sheriff Hill and some others uh, there at the office heard these calls, Sheriff Hill decided that he wanted to have uh, Mark arrested uh, and wanted him arrested immediately. And one of the things that that Bill, you brought out in the opening was that there was about 10,000 open warrants in Clayton County for various offenses, but that the sheriff made it known that this was a top priority, that they needed a warrant on Mark Tuggle uh, for harassing phone calls and that they needed to go get him immediately. Um, I think the sheriff showed up at Mark's house and Mark's wife was there. And, uh, she, when she told him that she, he wasn't home, 
She called uh, Mark. He said he would go and turn himself into the sheriff's office as soon as work was over. He was then told that that was not going to be acceptable and that if, if he didn't get there immediately, they were going to come to his place of business and they were going to arrest him there and haul him out of there. Um, so Mark gets in his car, goes there, and I'll let Bill talk a little bit more about exactly the ordeal he went through, but he was treated very roughly uh, there. And it, apparently this was all done in an effort to make sure that they got uh, Mark uh, processed, photographed in his in, a, in an orange jumpsuit, uh, and um, all this done in time to do what I think you would call a perp walk uh, in front of the six o'clock news so that they could then make a statement about it. Um, and so uh, that's essentially what happened. And and so uh, Bill and his team brought a, a lawsuit on behalf of Mark against the sheriff uh, for essentially abuse and abuse of power. It was a the claims, the specific claims were a violation of his First Amendment rights, uh, a uh, retaliatory prosecution and a false arrest there and, and a, a malicious, malicious prosecution. Um, and, uh, that resulted in, uh, the verdict. So I don't, I don't, I'm not sure where to start there, Bill. First of all, I guess, did I get the basic facts, uh, uh correct? You did. Um, you did. And, and I think the place to start is probably the, uh, the hardest, you can't have this conversation without talking about the transition that took place in, in, in Clayton County um at that time frame um clayton went from a over the course basically from the olympics until roughly 2004 the demographics of clayton county completely flipped um it went from a very very rural um predominantly white farming place right um to a community that was i think literally went from something like 80, 20 to 60, 40 African-American. And, and that's only increased over time. That's a long, that's a long tale. But in that, in that 2004 election, every single person who was up for election, they were all white, lost. And virtually everybody who beat them, I could be off, maybe one office was African-American. It was a sea change. And look, a lot of that was good, right? Some folks needed to be out of office. Right. Uh, not so sure that this one fell into that category. Um, and it's it's worth noting the magistrate here was also brand new. Um, and that's the magistrate who signed the warrant when, once, right. once they took the uh, because and I'll let you get into a little bit about you know how they got this warrant so quickly. But the magistrate who actually signed the warrant was a brand new magistrate as well. That's correct. And uh, I, you know, obviously don't know her experience and didn't know it at the time, except to say that I don't think anybody who had worked in criminal law for more than five minutes would have executed these warrants. Um, but so the mood, right, was incredibly tense in the community at the time, right? And then what happened to these, and I can't remember if it was 27 or 28 people was, no one had ever seen anything like this before. Uh, I mean, it was it was un, unbelievable, um, and there was just more to come. Um, I, I will just interject one other thing that will again sort of flow as an interesting theme here is, from a lawyer standpoint, 
there was a claims made policy in place for the county. Right. Or, or sorry, not a claims made. I apologize. What's the other what's the other policy? The ones when it happens, right? An accrual policy. So right. they all got fired on the third. Mark got arrested on the fourth. Um, it became crystal clear to us very early on there wasn't going to be any insurance money left over for Mark. And sure enough, that was true. Ultimately, the carrier in the big case tendered its policy limits to the court and just said, y'all sort it out, um, which resulted, I think, ultimately in like an $8 million settlement in that case. For but, all like the wrongful termination? Yeah. And my okay. dear friend who's since passed away, Harlan Miller, uh, had that case. And um, yeah, so Mark and I knew pretty early on, it was like, well, this is going to be, uh, we'll see what happens. This will get interesting. Um, yeah. And, but Mark never wavered in his commitment. And I felt, I just felt really strongly about you had, you can't let something like this go by. Right. You can't. Um, Bill, I'm wondering, and, and, and this is no disrespect to, to Mark who's, who's with us, but I feel like a lot of the, the thing to me, especially when you first get a call about a case that's involves some sort of, um, you know, uh, like reputational harm or where you've got sort of a, a defamation situation or whatever it is that I, I worry sometimes, am I getting the full story or how am I going to get the full story when it, especially when it comes to making decisions about taking the case? Was this a case that, that you knew already from the, that you already knew sort of the climate, the sea change that had happened. And so you um, really kind of, as the facts, as you knew them, you expected them to sort of pan out the way they did, or was it something that you really had to investigate a lot? Cause that's, that's something that makes me nervous sometimes in these cases, just, just always wondering, um, is there something else out there that I don't know about? Right. And that, that is the beauty of the open records act, right? Um, it, it allows you to, to, to get your evidence by and large, uh, in these cases before you ever file suit. And so right. we had that, um, but gotcha. I'll tell you something else too. I mean, it, you know, Mark, um, I don't think he'd be mad at me for saying this. You know, Mark grew up with these people, those 27. Mark will tell you he is not the smartest brother in the family, right? He struggled <laughs> academically. But when you sit down and meet with Mark, you spend 20 minutes in the room. And the man is as honest as the day is long. He is just as good a soul, a person as you'll ever meet. I never doubted a word the man said. Um He's just a simple guy, and he thought what happened to his friends was wrong, and he was going to be damned if he didn't say something about it. Yeah. You know, maybe someone else would have thought for a minute, you know what, I'm not going to call this crazy guy because there's no telling what he'll do, right? Right. right. <clears throat> Mark's linear, man. You mistreat my family, and he thinks of these people as his family. It's like, you're going to hear about it. Yeah. Um, I'm sure he had his regrets uh you know, 48 hours later when his blood pressure was through the roof. But at least in that moment, that's what he was thinking.
So, Yvonne, the internet is getting more and more crowded, especially ever since the pandemic, and it's getting harder and harder to get noticed online. And you can have all the great verdicts in the world, but if nobody knows about them, then they're not going to come and hire your law firm. So you need to find a company like Digital Law Marketing. That's right. It turns out that what you put on the internet is no good if people can't find it. And Steve, we've talked about this, but now that I finally know what SEO is, which is search engine optimization, it's really important that your firm's site is is maximizing the hits that it's going to get. And something that digital law marketing is doing that's really cool right now is they're offering free SEO audits uh, for law firm campaigns. So that's something our listeners should take advantage of. Yeah, because it's hard to get around the internet and know how to make yourself visible without having somebody help you. And they are the experts in this. And not only will they help you design your website if you need to, they'll do your content marketing, they'll do your search engine optimization, as Yvonne just said, they'll do your pay-per-click marketing, social media marketing, and they also will offer full management on Google's new local service ads, which we just learned about and are trying to get into, but it's another way that you can put yourself out there and get people to know who you are. And digital law marketing is great at it. Exactly. And, you know, one of the things I think is cool is that you work with them and they really make you feel like they know your firm and they know you and that they help you with your web presence so that it feels individual. It doesn't feel cookie cutter. It feels like they know the people at your firm and they get what you're trying to accomplish. Yeah, it's not like they already have a website done and just give you one that's already been done. But they will spend time with you, get to know your personality, put your personality into the website. And you should go visit them at digitallawmarketing.com. That's digitallawmarketing.com. Tell them, tell them we sent you. Yeah, what, one of the things I, uh, that I failed to mention is that they had let so many uh, deputies go that when they wanted to get this warrant done, they couldn't find anybody to even open up the computer system because they had fired so many people. Uh, and that's what man staff was gone basically. Right. Right. And, and, and that's why the, the I know you initially had another defendant, uh, a, a, a deputy named uh, Joanne Borelli. And uh, it sounds like she ended up being a really good witness for you because she basically made it sound like, well, she recognized that if she didn't do what the sheriff wanted, then she wouldn't have a job. Yeah. Um but um, but yeah, so so since she was one of the the only people left, she had to she the job of getting the warrants fell on her since she could actually access the computer system. Well, you know, and that was one of the challenges uh, as we got closer to trial. I really didn't want her sitting at that table. Yeah. But as you see in cases, you know, our med mal cases and others all the time, you got the same lawyer representing both of them. And I'm like, you are not looking out for her interest because, you know, perfectly well that I'd let her out. Right. And, you know, obviously you don't communicate with represented people, um, but law enforcement is a small community. Um, Joanne went and got her own lawyer. Um, and it, you know, maybe a month and a half before trial and it allowed us to, to let her out. And she was all too willing to testify um, after what had happened. She and Sean, by the way, are married now. Um, Sean was Sutherland was one of the guys on the rooftop. I refer to him as the cat with nine lives because he survived every administration. Oh, my wow. God. Yeah. All the way through. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> so, wow. so, Mark, if I could ask you for one second, when you get this call that from your wife that you're now going to be arrested, 
what goes through your mind at that moment? And, and, and then I guess, tell us about how you end up uh, getting in touch with Bill. Well, it was, it, it was, it was devastating. I was at work and, and, and they're asking me, uh, one of the deputies got on the phone and said, Hey, where you're at and all that. And I said, well, look, I'll just turn myself in. And I was very confused on what I'd done that was, that weren't that. And, um, later on, um, I get another phone call uh, just a few minutes later from the same deputy. He said, I was told by the sheriff to turn you, to have you in in jail by four o'clock. And I didn't know what that meant. I said, no, no, I can't leave work. Let me turn myself in. I'll tell you a time that I'm going to turn myself in. I'll turn myself in at seven o'clock. And he said, well, the sheriff's not going to like this. And then we hung up. And that's when I uh, went and um, um, and I went and turned myself in. I called my wife. I apologized, you know, for what's going on. My kids are crying. The deputies are out there. Uh, the news media is calling the house. And even one of them said, you know, I understand your husband's on the run. And no, I wasn't on the run. I was just, I was at work and I was going to turn myself in. And being around this sheriff's office for for several years, and, and a lot of them people are dear friends of mine, and we've coached ball together. I've introduced a couple of them to their wives. Uh, I, I, I've been to parties. I've been to weddings. I've, I've been to their kids' birthday parties. And, and they was just personal friends of mine. It just, you know, it just flew all over me. And, um, and, and I reacted that way. Uh, am I would I take it back? I'd probably react the same way because they was dear friends and, and, and I'm the type of person and I was raised as, you know, as, as, uh, uh, a friend, uh, you have very few friends in a lifetime that you really call friends. And a lot of them was, and I seen, I've been fired before. So I seen how it was upsetting a lot of families. And that's the reason I responded the way I did. And it was, it was, uh, it was, it was tough. And, 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 you know, still here we are, uh, talking many years later and we're still talking about it, you know, but, uh, and then, uh, I, uh, made a, uh, Stanley and I got together and of course he told me I probably shouldn't have done that. And, um, and as Bill said, I, I'm probably not, I, I, I'm probably the quickest person. Stanley's a, a thinker and, and knows what to do. I, I, sometimes I, I, I say things, not that I regret, it's just straight from my heart. And, and, uh, so we made a few phone calls and, uh, we found to, we, uh, I was, at, went up and interviewed with Bill and, uh, said and talked to him. And when I left there, I, I felt like we had the right situation to go forward because I did not feel that I was, uh, I was, um, I, I, I shouldn't have been locked up for what I said. Yeah. I mean, the thing is too, like in reading about, I was, I was not familiar with the case until I was getting ready for the episode. And, and in reading, it's sort of you, like there were these two sides that I could see because I could, there was this side of what happened that felt so, I shouldn't say sides, but like levels of what happens. It just feels so sort of vindictive and heartless when it comes to these specific individuals who I'm sure work very hard and what's done to them just because someone else is elected and how that affects, you know, if you've ever had a, you know, a parent who's lost a job or anything like that, how that affects each one of those families and how 
just sort of heartless, it sounds. Then there's like the level that you hear about just as somebody who lives in Atlanta and could live in Clayton County where you're like, let me get this straight. Like the people that are responsible for protecting all of us, they, you know, somebody came in and the person that was elected to be in charge of that just fired a bunch of people and didn't really care about how that would affect the department's ability to, you know, protect people that that live there. I mean, so it's I would be angry, too. I don't know what I would do if I personally knew the people, but it's kind of shocking on multiple levels. Unprecedented. That, that, that is so true. And, and, and with me being friends of these people and, and, and I've been in the business that I've, I've been in, I have went to dealerships, RV dealerships and taken over the sales team. And, and they would be 10 to 12 salespeople there. And the first thing I would do is say, guys, I was brought in here to do this. And this is the way I would like to do it. And I'd like to have everybody stay. But if, if, if you don't feel that way, then, you know, we just need to talk about it. But he did not do that. He went in there and, and punished people, uh, Massengale, Bartlett. When we was in high school, they was junior deputies. That's the only job they ever had. That was their career. And here it is. And the way I told Bill the first time I met him, I said, I felt like that that guy went in there and reached in and grabbed their heart and pulled it out because that was their life. They loved that job. They supported. They they took care of people of our county, when we was asleep, they was the ones that's on the street protecting us. And then this guy goes in there and just rips them out, rips their heart out and, and, and treats them like prisoners that they've been locking up for years, putting it, taking their stuff away from them, putting them in the same bag that, that they put all the prisoners, personal stuff in, and then told them they could walk home and all. You don't treat people that way. If you're going in and change the atmosphere of a business or our department or government, you don't treat people that way. You find out who wants to be on your team. And if they don't, then, then you, you, you handle it in a professional way. He didn't do it. And that just flew all over me when I heard that my dear friends was walking out and there's people on, on the roof uh, with guns. And, and these people's done nothing but exercise. I mean, they they protected Clayton County for years. And their only, their only fault was they voted for a different person. And that should not happen in the United States of America. Right. I mean, it definitely felt like it just had revenge all over it, uh, which was, you know, he, there were certain people who weren't supporting this, the new sheriff. And so he was just going to make sure, make an example of them. And, um, and I I thought it was bill, you know, going back to your closing, you know, about how you talk about how tyranny starts and it starts with the suppression of, uh, of your right to speak and, and to criticize. And then by instilling fear, and, uh, you know, that, that's what it seemed like this sheriff decided to do was not only, uh, you know, su- you know, suppress Mark's right to speak. And, and, and we can talk about that in a second, but just to instill fear throughout the community that, uh, you know, he was the new sheriff in town. And if you didn't do it his way, then, uh, you know, you're going to be fired. You're going to lose your job or you're going to be arrested. Yeah. That perp walk was, you know, had its purpose. Yeah. And it wasn't just to embarrass Mark. Yeah. Um, it, 
So, so Bill, talk about how you go about putting together a case like this. Uh, you, so under Section 1983, and, and, and feel free to educate our listeners a little bit about a, uh, about a Section 1983 uh, case. But, you know, do you it, it, it sounds like you're basically um, uh, going and deposing all of the people who are either a part of the arrest or a part of the decision to arrest. It was, is there much expert work involved? So typically, no. Um, as you know, under 703, right, the matter has to be beyond the can of an ordinary juror. And um, generally speaking, judge, especially in false arrest, malicious prosecution, First Amendment cases, they're not going to allow you to put somebody up to say, yeah, there was no probable cause, right? Because um, ultimately, that's the court's decision, question of law, and then a jury's determination. So, um, so no. There are some exceptions to that in the excessive force context, but the challenge uh, in every 1983 case is getting to a jury. Um, we were very fortunate in this case, in part because of some of the choices the defense made um, in terms of how they managed the case. But qualified immunity now, today, is virtually impregnable, um, and the law has changed a little bit as far as First Amendment retaliation is concerned um, to where I'd be curious where that claim would fly today. Um, I think under these facts, we might still be okay, but it would be tough. Um, you know, qualified immunities become incredibly circular. Um, so, you know, it's like flip the coin. If it's heads, you win. If it's tails, if it's heads, you lose. And if it's tails, you lose. Right. right. Whatever that expression is. Um, tails, I win. Yeah, whatever. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Tells you when, right? Um, anyway, um, so we had to establish not just that there's no probable cause, but there's no arguable probable cause, which is this amorphous sort of made up standard that reduced to its essence is, you know, if a um, by the time we tried the case, I guess I can't remember if Scalia had gotten around to writing this opinion, but essentially it's as if any officer, if there could be any room for disagreement as to whether probable cause existed, um, they're entitled to qualified immunity because the law wasn't clearly established, right? You can imagine how difficult that is. Probable cause is an extraordinarily low standard to begin with, right? Um, and now we've, you know, we've added this component of everybody's got to know um, right. or you, you can't get there. Um, you know, larger question as to whether we should live in a society where it's that hard to get accountability from law enforcement, but that's a conversation yeah. for another day. Um, so, you know, this case actually on its face was pretty straightforward. I'd been a prosecutor. I had prosecuted, you know, harassing phone calls cases, and this just wasn't right. And, and they compounded the problem. And, and this is sort of where the magistrate gets interesting is um, there's two warrants, it's not one warrant, there's two warrants. You, you can't have a warrant on one phone call. Right. Um, you know, it, that's not how harassing phone calls works um, by the sheer language of the statute. So, you know, if they put them both into one warrant, might have been a tougher, might have been a little bit harder for us, at least on the legal question before trial. Um, even so, and Yvonne, you pointed this out, it was a very important fact is, and, and Joanne Borelli brought this up when she went seek the warrant, she was under the impression these calls were made on two different days, right? One on the third, one on the fourth. It's only afterwards that she learned that they were made virtually, you know, one after the other. Mark's like, hey, I got the sheriff's direct line. I'm just going to call that one. Right. Um, 
it's just not harassing phone calls. And then, of course, the, the subject of what he's talking about brought up this great and relatively unique First Amendment question, which is, I mean, you're a public official, buddy. I yeah. get to call you any name in the book, pretty much, as long as it's not a threat. Um, that just comes with the territory. And uh, that fact had been lost on Victor. Um, yeah. So... It sounded like the defense in this case was mainly going along those lines that this could have been construed as a threat or that it was being construed as a threat and that that's what that they were essentially acting on a threat made against the um, the sheriff's office. Um, t tell us about how you address that. Well, you know, besides the so, so here are the facts in their favor in that regard. He knew he had done something incredibly uh, dramatic and that lots of people were upset. Right. Including Mark. Mark wasn't the only one. Um, and so if you're making that argument, you say, look, this comes in this environment. Look at the totality of the circumstances. Someone's calling, making these calls, calling me names. You know, I don't know what he's going to do next. Um, I felt threatened by it. Uh, but, you know, that's not really the standard. Um, and secondly, the calls, um, at least one of which was recorded, it didn't sound threatening, right? He called you short little bastard, which putting the bastard part aside is actually pretty accurate. He's quite short. <laughs> um, you know, it, it just, you just can't get there from here, um, which seemed fairly obvious. And I think ultimately it was very obvious to the jury. Um, sort of yeah. interesting fact. Yeah. And, and I think the, uh, the, the, person who uh mark ended up speaking to when he made the second call uh basically testified that he you know he he wanted a meeting and that he you know he did call him uh, said it was scum but he didn't sound threatening at all is that is that right yeah i mean john antoine's actually a pretty good guy um i mean that was what was interesting about this and it's one of the reasons why i got into doing some of this civil rights work is if you've been a prosecutor and you take in a smaller community you you get to know the officers become your friends. There's just not that many of them, right? You go to lunch, you hang out, you do that. And I, I joke, you know, you sort of learn to speak their language and it's a slightly different language. And if you approach these cases and those people with, you know, with respect and a degree of humility, they appreciate it and they'll be very forthcoming with you. I mean, I don't think I actually deposed, I was looking at a transcript, uh, you know, I'm pretty sure I never deposed Hammer and I don't think I deposed John Antoine um you know we just put them up there um because i was pretty sure i knew what they were going to say and I, I you know i spoke their language um so yeah john was a good guy in his own way who went to work for the wrong person right most of these folks by the time this trial happened they'd figured that out or been fired themselves and the uh, the solicitor's office, I assume it took about eight months. But once they got this file, they basically decided they weren't going to prosecute it. And then did you actually get the solicitor to come and testify? I did. Yeah, I'd forgotten that. I was just looking at the transcript and saw that um, that she had come to testify. Another person I know we didn't depose, but I'm sure I talked to her on the phone um, ahead of time. So but, but it's, you know. I, I always say that being a prosecutor is just like the best preparation you can have, especially for being a plaintiff's lawyer, right? We bear the burden of proof. We got to do good direct examinations. Everybody loves cross, but let's face it, that's where our you know, bread gets buttered. And 
you know, you learn to do things without a transcript, right? Right. Um, without panicking. And, and so, yeah, uh, it's, it's great training. Yvonne, uh, you know that the practice of law since the pandemic has started has completely changed. Completely changed. A lot more pajamas involved for me. Yes, yes. A lot more working from the computer. Yes. And only getting dressed from the uh, from the waist up. But you know who has helped that change and that transition immensely in our practice and can help everybody else in theirs is legal technology services. That's right. I mean, being good at doing things virtually, at doing things through Zoom, through video conference online, it's more important now than ever. I'll say Zoom or WebEx or whatever you use now Legal Technology Services has completely changed how they do things in order to get you organized, looking good. Our depositions, our hearings, our mediations have all changed. And a big part of that is because we do them all virtually and we're doing them with the help of Legal Technology Services. So they get our exhibits in order, um, you know, and you call up the exhibits by number. They'll highlight them, they'll enlarge them, they'll do whatever they want. And it actually flows really well. I do have to say, I think my depositions are more organized now than they were before the pandemic because I used to just walk in with like a giant box of documents and then I'd pull out the documents and go through them and uh, now I'm much more organized because of legal technology services yeah and I mean LTS I'm gonna I'm gonna call them LTS because we're on a first name basis (laughs) you know my favorite thing about them is that we work with them a lot their staff is really highly trained and you can always count on them to represent you well whether they're doing your trial technology when we have in-person trials one day, or if they're handling your depositions or they're doing settlement videos, other kinds of videos documenting stuff for you, you can always count on them to conduct themselves well. Clients like them, judges like them, courts like them, lawyers like them. Yeah, the one thing that I have to say is uh, when we're in trial, while I think we do pretty good in front of juries and hopefully they like us, they always like our trial techs, whether it's Bob, Taylor, Quentin, David, Liz, just any one of the people over there, they're all fantastic. And of course, Melanie, who runs the ship over there. But they do more than just exhibits. They do day in the life videos. They do settlement documentaries. They do demonstratives. And everything they do is just excellent. And you can look them up at ltsatlanta.com. And I can say that if you call them and tell them that you heard about them on the Great Trials podcast, then you get 10% off of your first service. So look them up at ltsatlanta.com. And I do want to say, even though they're based in Georgia, they do work nationwide. And they, I know they've done trials all over the country. Uh, but look them up at ltsatlanta.com. One thing we should mention is that the that, uh, Sheriff Hill, when he was interviewed after the charges were dropped uh, against Mark, uh, said something. And this seems like a pretty damning statement, but I guess uh, he probably didn't think it out. He said, well, he may have beat the rap, but he didn't beat the ride. And I'm sure he won't be calling uh, the jail anymore. Forgotten about that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so, um <laughs> Tell, tell me how did how did uh, how did Victor Hill do? Uh, he he testified in the trial, and how did he do on the stand? Mark, you want to take that one? Well, you know, Bill asked me did did I, did we want to let him go first or me? And uh, and you know, I, I I said, well, let's let him go because after the years that he has spent, them three years he spent as sheriff, and uh, in his final year. 
uh, we was going to court. Uh, I've seen enough of him. I knew if he got on the stand, he would he would probably create a big problem for himself, but not realizing it because he, his attitude and, and and the way he looked down on everybody. Well, he, he looked up to everybody, but he looked down on everybody <laughs> in his attitude. Uh, and I'm short too. So, and I did bring that up. We, we see each other eye to eye, but I don't have a problem with it. God made, made me this way. And so I accept it and, and I learned to live with it. But, but he, he, he thought he could outsmart everybody. Yeah, and I, I, he, I would agree with that, Mark. I mean, I think he, um, Victor is ultimately his own worst enemy. And right. he's not unlike, you know, he is the, uh, this term gets thrown around a lot these days, but you know, he's a quintessential narcissist. Um, and he just can't help himself. Uh, and he's convinced that ever, and, and look for good reason, you know, that the statement that Trump is famous for, you know, I could stand in the middle of times square and, you know, shoot somebody and my supporters would still support me. Victor Hill just got indicted and convicted. Uh, and if, if he could run, which he can, he'd get reelected in Clayton County. Right. To this day. He had just lost uh, the 08 election by the time we tried this case. Um, but he came back and won again, uh, despite it all. Uh, and, and that there's this weird dynamic down there where folks love him. They just love him. Uh, right. And, and he... Cross-examination, I knew that was something that we could exploit. Um, I, you know, I don't remember the details probably as well as I should, but I, I do remember, you know, saying, let's let's just walk through some hypotheticals. What if I stood out on, I mean, most you know, some of our listeners probably been down to Clayton County Courthouse down there off, uh, is it 1941, off Tara Boulevard, which is the big old monolith. And, and that's a pretty big highway. I think it's down there is at least four lanes. And... You know, I went through this thing. With, what if I stood across the street? What if I stood in the parking lot with a sign that said, you know, Sheriff's a short little bastard. Can you arrest me for that? Yes, I can. <laughs> what if I'm across the street? Can I? <laughs> can you do it then, too? You know, and um, yeah, you can't call me names. You, just, you can't call me names. You just didn't get it. All right. Um, How much were you um, able to do um, with Vordire in terms of Kind of because you were in federal court, which I know is is um, so it's usually going to be a little bit more limited in terms of exploring, you know, people's thoughts about this kind of thing, and in, in terms of exploring whether you had some of supporters of his around that kind of thing. Well, so um, I'm glad you brought that up because it was our our single most expensive mistake. Um, so I will admit to being a card carrying member of ADD Nation. Right. Um, what I love about <laughs> courtrooms is only one person can speak at a time. Everything's generally well organized. You know, it just makes my life easier. I don't know if Judge Evans still does this, but at the time, each juror had a paddle. Now, we've all seen that in every court I'd ever been in. The judge lines everybody up by their number. One, two, three, four, five. <laughs> She's like, she gave out your paddle to sit wherever you want. <laughs> like juror two is in the back row juror one's over here I mean, oh gosh and i was just losing my mind so yes we were able to ask some of those questions i mean she ran a pretty tight ship um i don't think we probably I think voir dire probably lasted three hours max right wow that's actually long for federal court 
Mark, you remember how? I mean, we had a jury in like half a day, right? Yeah, that, that, that's true. And and I, I got to say this, Bill, you may be going to this, but after we picked the jury and we realized that they was, or Bill realized they was so confused or sitting all over, he leaned over and said, "You should fire me right now." Uh, you remember <laughs> that? A woman on, we led a woman on that jury that was that was from Jonesboro, which was his uh, from Forest Park. Forest Park. Thanks, Mark. Yeah. 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 And that was his stronghold. And it was just, I couldn't believe it. Um, there were some bats and issues too, that we had to be careful of. Uh, mm-hmm. Right. So um, another holdover from years of being a prosecutor, uh, you know, that's a great arsenal. If you, in your quiver as a civil lawyer, if, if you actually know how Batson works, um, it can be a huge advantage. And in that case, I was actually worried the other way around. I wanted to make sure right. I'm careful about that. So, um, so yeah, that, and when we get to the end, I'll tell you why that was such an expensive mistake, but, um, we knew it was going to be a mistake. And in fact, that picture that I, I sent you in the back row, uh, the first person you see just on the other side of Mark's head, um, that was our juror from Forest Park. Okay. So, um, um before we move move on from Vordier, Mark, what did you think about whole that that whole process? Because the the first time I ever actually did that when I was out of law school, I was so surprised that you didn't pick the jurors that you wanted. You you struck the people that you didn't want. And and I'm wondering what you thought about that whole how that process works. Well, you know, I, I was very confused. Uh, I mean, you, you have to understand. I'm just a simple person, and I'm going to a federal court. Now, I've been to state court before, uh, certain business uh, situations, and, and, you know, been to traffic court. I, I really didn't understand the whole thing. And, and then when, when they seated the jury, uh, that's when Bill turned and looked at me and said that. And I'm sitting there going, no, you know, uh, I can't fire you now because I don't know what I fired you about other than that. Woman shouldn't be sitting here. She's from Clay County, but you know, <laughs> I, I from the time I met Bill till till today, and that's been many years now. I have full confidence, and I knew that he would uh, he would overcome that somehow. Uh, and it wasn't to our liking at the end, but you know what? That was what was uh, that was what was supposed to be given to us. So uh, Bill Bill worked around that real good and done a great job and. Uh, and, uh, but, uh, I, I do understand it now a little bit better. Yeah. Uh, and, and so not, not many people get to go to, uh, to, uh, federal court in that type of situation. And I wish it not on anybody. Yeah. I, I will say that I, Bill, I've had that happen to me one time where the judge just had him sit in whatever order. And when they were ready, they didn't even have paddles, but they had, it, you know, and when they're raising their hands and, it, it got so confusing. The The problem was for my partner and I trying the case is that the entire jury panel was so bad. I don't think it mattered what order they said. It, we, it was going to be uniformly bad. But Yeah. Um, I mean, what, what's interesting about these cases is, again, if you can get them to trial. Um, jurors take this stuff really seriously. Yeah. Right. And and what and, and people often say, I mean, a false arrest case. So he spent 36 hours in jail. What's the big deal? You know, blah, 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 blah. Charges were dismissed. I'm like, you ever been to jail? 
You yeah. know, ever been fingerprinted, ever had, you know, here's a little known fact, right, is you get assigned a, a GCIC, NCIC number. That number follows you for the rest of your life. Even those charges are dismissed. You are in the system. Yeah. Um, and I've had that misidentification case um, of someone who had their name in a system and boom, somebody else gets picked up and they get arrested for something they weren't even there. Wow. I am going to share this with you. It is rough when you go to jail and your last name is Togel. And two days prior to that, for the eight years, your brother was the sheriff named Togel. So I was I was so concerned about the way I would be treated by either side. Right. Yeah. Right. And and we should mention that when they uh, when Mark went to jail and as you said already, Bill, he was in there for about thirty six hours before he uh, was able to be bonded out. But he. Um, he was put in general population, so he wasn't given any type of normally if uh, if somebody from law enforcement is arrested, they might be put in with uh, special security, given some uh, protection from the rest of the population. That was not done for Mark, uh, which made it extremely hard on Mark. And even as you pointed out, Bill, uh, his blood pressure was so high um, that they, a nurse had to step in to essentially try and protect Mark and his blood pressure was so high he was at risk for a stroke. Yeah. Um, that was very true. It was 255 over 195. Oh, my God. You know, I think what Mark reminded me of when we were talking a little bit earlier today is, which I think is real important for your listeners, we always talk about preparation, right? Lawyers love to talk about preparation, but this is a relatively straightforward case. It was going to be a week-long trial, you know, not all that complicated. But Mark reminded me we spent, you know, we spent about a week together the week beforehand. Um, and I just think it's so important, especially if, if a client has a personal story to tell, you can't just know that story, right? You have to actually know the person and to some degree, they got to know you, right? So they can trust you. Um, uh, cause they're gonna be terrified. Most clients are trials hard, right? I tell folks the only people who have fun at trial are the lawyers. Everybody else is either bored or scared. Right. Um, and I don't know what we were doing all week long, Mark, but I guess we spent a lot of time together, huh? <laughs> we, we sure did. Uh, my wife and I uh, arrived at your office about 9 o'clock every day, and we'd leave after dark. And, uh, and, and, and what I loved about now, understanding – watching trials on TV, watching, you know, and, and hearing people talk. One thing I got to say about Bill and, 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 you know, Bill and I talk once, maybe three, two times a year, I'll call him at Christmas or something. But one thing I learned about Bill, he took it so personal. Once he heard my story and realized I was sincere, he took it so personal. And it was like, I, I don't know if I'm saying this correctly, but it was like a big old picture and all the, it got turned into a puzzle and then Bill had to put it together. And, and, and he walked me through from day one, when we walked into the courtroom to picking a jury, which that's when I should have fired him. But, but full confidence in your brother. I, I, I wasn't going to fire you, but, but here's the thing. He, he walked us through the whole thing and never did try to put uh, verbiage in my 
in, 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 in my lips so it would come out. He said, Mark, you just be yourself. Right. But you just tell the truth. And, 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 if, and if you don't know the answer, then just say you don't know. But tell the truth. And he says, you know, but Bill walked us through and, 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 you know, y'all already figured out I'm not a good speaker or anything or choice of words, not best, but that's what he, he told us. And, and he walked us all the way through these chalkboards and he said, this is what's going to happen. This is what they might say. And, and, you know, I, I have to give it to, I, I've never looked back one time from continuing and having Bill from the start to the finish uh, because he prepared us. Because we don't, as, as citizens, we don't know what goes on in them rooms. We don't know what's going on. Half the time, half them words, I don't have a clue, you know? And, uh, and but Bill took his time and we spent a whole week uh, eating together. And, and you know what's so neat about Bill Atkins? I'm going to say this. He talked to my wife and I about our kids. He talked to us about our uh, what we like in life. And during that week, we I, I really I love Bill Atkins now. Not because we won, but he <laughs> he took it personally and, and prepared us for what. And he told us from the day one I met him. He said the problem we're gonna have with this case is getting paid. And he said, "How do you feel about that?" I said, "It's not about money." It's about the way he treated me, the way he treated them 27 deputies at first, the way he has treated people for the past three years. It's not about money. It's about treating people right. And Bill, Bill has that heart. He has a heart for that for people. You know, until that jury returned that verdict, I, I mentioned to Mark today, he's the only person who held Victor accountable. All those years, three terms right. in office, at least one other criminal trial is only one person who held him accountable and who had the courage to go from start to finish to do that. Um, you know, I think what allows you, you know, Victor certainly didn't help himself. So I will tell you one little anecdote that may not come across in the transcript, although I think I said it in closing. How Victor doesn't help himself on his last day. When I'm getting ready to do closing argument, I'll look over at him. And he has put on, he had this badge that was like went around his neck. A big old star right in the middle. Um, he hadn't worn that all week. And on that day, for closing arguments, he showed up with the stars literally like, I don't know, five inches wide. Um, and, it, you know, it was, it was beautiful. It was just loud. He said, he wants you to know right now who the sheriff is for another three months. He wants to make sure you know. I mean, it was it was unbelievable. And I think juries understand abuse of power. Yeah. They understand abuse of power and they don't like it. Not one bit. Absolutely. So, Bill, let's turn a little bit and talk about how you uh, how you ask for damages in a case like this, or how do you present damages in a case like this, uh, where you know going back and 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 we all understand how difficult this was on Mark, but it, you know it is uh, thirty six hours, uh, you know, and uh, you know he's can still go on and work, can still go on and live his life. It's not like an injury case where you know, he, he is affected in that way. So talk about how you 
build the damages part of it and then how you ask for and, and present damages here? So one of the challenges uh, in these cases, is, and some people may remember this uh, from law school, but so you you can't ask for damages for sort of the inchoate right, the right itself, right? There's no inherent value of liberty, so to speak. Um, and But that's exactly what you're going to ask for damages for, right? You just have to frame it differently. Um, and w- what I find and what I try to walk people through is, each step along the way and give them a sensory um, experience, right? Um, I'll often ask a witness, you know, when you got put in the back of the squad car, what did the squad car smell like, right? What did it sound like when the handcuffs went on? Because um, you never know which one of those experiences is going to trigger an emotional response from the person. But it also helps the jury understand this isn't just, you know, they throw the cuffs on, they throw you in the, you know, in a room and then you're out 36 hours later, so be it. Um, so, you know, you walk them through that so the jury understands that it's more than just you spent 36 hours in custody. Um, and then you, you know, you talk about what, what do you do with 36 hours of your life? What, what are the things we do? And you don't put a value on brushing your teeth right now in the morning um, because you do it every morning in your own bathroom right? Well, what if you couldn't? I mean, in some respects, it's not all that different than some of the other things we do. You know, what if you can't get in your car and drive to work and sit in traffic? And that on a normal day really stinks. But when you compare it to sitting in custody, I'll sit in Atlanta traffic every day and twice on Sunday. Um, So, you, you know, you have to kind of walk them through that. And then ultimately, what I try to do is sort of empower a jury to say, look, you get to decide what, you know, an hour of your life is worth to have the freedom to do whatever you want with it, sit in the chair, go to sleep, do whatever you want. What is that worth? You get to decide that there is no measure, right? There's no calculation I can do for you. You have to decide that. And, and quite frankly, many times, you know, I will either not give a number um, or I'll set a floor, you know, the rock bottom price for, you know, freedom in Clayton County should be whatever. Um, and it's interesting because uh, I, I had this conversation with someone the other day who, who I guess folks are using again, and in, in our other case, med mal cases, whatnot, um, putting value of the life and, and saying, you know, Joe, Joe shortstop just signed a $283 million contract, you know, and then using that to kind of do some anchoring and framing with juries, um, which is fascinating to me because in false arrest cases, we get that from the defense. When Mr. Atkins just told you to give him a million dollars in damages for 36 hours. Well, that's, you know, $100,000 an hour, whatever, right? They, you know, they'll do the math. That's ridiculous. You know, uh, I mean, Somebody who works at so-and-so makes $10 an hour. Lawyers make $300 an hour. You know, how, you know that's a crazy number. Um, and the response to that, again, it's such an inversion of what you see in our other work is, so let me get this straight. Let's assume that it's Tom Cruise who gets locked up. Well, last I checked, you know, Tom gets a piece of, you know, the, the profits from all of his movies. So how much do you think he earned for, you know, pick your Tom Cruise moment. It's like $450 million. 
So Tom's liberty, I guess, I guess it, if I'm listening to them correctly, his liberty is worth more than yours or mine because he's Tom Cruise. I don't think that's how it works. So it's great. You can just sort of flip it on them. Um, now I understand that in our cases, it's usually the other way around. We're the ones doing the anchoring, but um, I just think that's an interesting uh, thing. And then, of course, the punitives in this case were sort of speak for themselves. Right. Uh, getting, and although we, we ultimately lost those on appeal. Yeah, I saw that. You talk about I, I saw that uh, uh, there was a an agreement or some sort of an agreement. To, at least that's what the 11th Circuit was saying about letting go of the malicious prosecution and the punitives. And then the jury essentially the jury came out very quick after that. At least that's what it sounded like from that order. What what happened there? Ink wasn't even dry. Well, OK, you know, we, we're going we're going along. I don't remember how long we were in, how far we were into deliberations, but I was starting to get very nervous and we had we got two notes out on what's the definition of malice or malicious. And I'd gone back and looked at the charges and I was like, they're not consistent. So the definition for malice defining malicious prosecution and malice for punitive damages were not the same. And I think it was leading to a great deal of confusion. I was like, well, here's a simple solution. We'll get rid of the malicious prosecution claim. And then they don't have to worry about that anymore. Right. Um, so that was my grand idea. And um, I don't remember why it is that that resulted in us losing the punitives. But long and short of it is we went into chambers to to put this on the record. Um, don't know why she didn't do it in open court, but to put it on the record. And literally, as we're done, there's a knock on the door and it fails like the jury has a verdict. So there you have it. Yeah. Wow. Um, but the to sort of roll this back to Wadir, um, we talked to the jurors afterwards and more than one of us said, we were trying so hard to give you a, you know, seven figures essentially, but um, that one juror, she just wouldn't budge. And ultimately, you know, I said, you can't, you can't ignore race. Um, her comment with a quote that has stuck with me forever is I am not going to reach into a black man's pocket and give a white man one more penny. Hmm. And, and I was like, and that's still in my mind too. I, I, I just don't understand people. Well, you know, I, I'm sure there's, if you, I'm sure the flip side of that has happened more times than we could care to imagine, you know, Mark and you and I have talked about that before. It's just interesting how, again, it was a really tense time. It's a really mm -hmm. tense time. And there was a lot of bitterness. Um, so that definitely drove down our, drove down our verdict. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, well guys, this has been really fascinating to talk about and, and just a great story. Mark, I'm, I'm wondering if you've got any sort of thoughts about what, what your feelings are about sitting there for a week or, you know, how you felt being in the courtroom and what you observed, uh, any, any thoughts about that, uh, that, that you have? Well, you know, that, that was something that, uh, I don't know if I'm blessed or, or, or I was just lucky or whatever, but you know, I would sit there for two weeks for the reason I was there because them people, them 27 was treated wrongly, uh, uh, voting, uh, for a person and then get fired, you know? So I would sit there for two weeks. I'd sit there for a month 
Uh, of course, now Bill, Bill probably wouldn't sit there with me for a month. Uh, but, <laughs> but, you know, it, 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 it would it, – I, I will do the same thing for – if you're a friend of mine, I'm going to go to bat for you and I'm going to stand beside it. So, that, so that's the way it was. But I, I was glad that uh, I got to experience that. Uh, and uh, it's just uh, – and, and what we got, we probably should have got more. But you know what we got was what was deserved to us. And I respect that. So. And, Bill, how about you? Is there, is there anything else that you want to uh, make sure that our listeners know about the uh, about the Tuggle versus uh, Clayton County and, and Victor Hill case that we haven't had a chance to uh, chance to talk about? You know, um, I guess all I would say is there are opportunities that we get in our career if we're lucky enough um, to take a case because it's the right thing to do. Um, it's not necessarily going to make you, you know, you're not going to buy a jet or an island, but you're, you're going to make a difference in someone's life. And more importantly, you're going to stand up for something that matters. And if you've got a client who's willing to do that um, and you have that opportunity, take it every time. Yeah. Um, Cause those are the cases that will stay with you. I mean, look, the, you know, $77 million verdict will stay with you too. <laughs> right. But, um, <laughs> but these are nice, you know, these are nice to have. And I know that you've talked to Natalie before about our other little thing up in Rome. Um, yep. <laughs> had very much the same feeling to it. Uh, and Mark is, he's the one client I can count on, uh, calls me at least once a year to say hello, wish my family a Merry Christmas. So. That's great. Well, this has been a tremendous uh, story. And I, I, I feel like I should just make sure that our listeners know. So Victor Hill, uh, unrelated to this case, but related to his actions during sheriff, is in prison right now or uh, it was convicted for civil rights violations uh, of prisoners uh, that were in his in his custody. I think it was at least six of them. Um, so, um, you, you know, obviously it, it sounds like uh, justice caught up with him. Um, and, uh, he was held accountable at least for those actions. He was. Yeah. Use of a restraint chair to punish people yeah. he didn't like. Um, well, listen, I, I want to make sure everybody knows, uh, we want to thank Mark Tuggle. Uh, Mark, you are, uh, our first and so far only, uh, pl- uh, client and plaintiff that we've had on the show. So, uh, so, uh, congratulations on that. And, and it's been fascinating hearing your perspective, uh, and I want to I want to thank Bill Atkins uh, and remind everybody that if they want to look up Bill, uh, they can go to warlawgroup.com. Uh, Bill and Mark, thank you so much for your time. Thanks. Thank you, guys. And I tell you what, I appreciate y'all letting me be here. I hope I didn't embarrass nobody or say something. <laughs> Absolutely uh, not. But, but you know what? <laughs> I just done what I did that day. I just spoke from, from the heart in the truth. Absolutely. So thank you. Thank you, Mark. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict?